welcome to Beckett Talks, the podcast series from Leeds Beckett University. In these podcasts, we will be showcasing our diverse community of students and academics, touching on the important themes that surround universities today. Health psychology is all about understanding people's behaviour and understanding how to change it. So a lot of health psychology is done in traditional health-related behaviours. So, for instance, getting people to eat more healthily, to do more exercise or to stick with what their doctors and nurses tell them to do. Health psychology, though, goes a bit more broader than that and it can also encompass changing any type of behaviour. So that's my role, really. I design and evaluate interventions to change behaviour. If we want people to behave more sustainably, it's really important to choose not just the same old small group of behaviour change techniques. So things like assuming people don't know what we want them to do or assuming that they don't know how to do it. So telling them what to do and showing them how to do it. It's important to go be much more creative than that and try to understand the world from that person's perspective to understand why they're behaving the way that they are currently doing, what they might change about their world to do things differently. So that's changing their physical environment as well as their social environment and working with them to help them anticipate barriers to change and putting into place a plan for how they're going to overcome those barriers. Really, if we're trying to explore the world from somebody else's perspective, the most important thing is to go out and see the world through their eyes. And that often involves going to interview them, to run focus groups or to run deliberative workshops with them in which we see them over a series of time and they share their knowledge and insight with us and we share our knowledge and insight into why it's important for them to change behaviour. So it can be quite a long process. There are all sorts of barriers that people have that might make it more difficult for them to behave more sustainably. One of the biggest ones we come across is simply that people live such busy, complicated lives. So if we're trying to tell them to make changes, let's say, for instance, to reduce air pollution in the city, that might involve them driving fewer miles, particularly for short journeys. So if we're trying to suggest to them, don't drive to work, to walk or cycle or take the bus, then we've got to understand what their life is like. So for instance, if they've got to drop kids off at school first, or if they've got to go on, on multiple journeys before they get to work, then that's going to make it so much more difficult and in many cases, absolutely impractical for them to walk or take the bus. So it's important to work with them to understand what changes that they can make in their world.
when we're looking at changing behaviour, it's really important not just to focus on the individual. There's lots of different psychological models of how you change behaviour, but all of them move us beyond just trying to almost blame the individual and say, what can you do differently? And it's important to consider their social world as well. So what are their friends and, and colleagues and family expecting them to do and how do they behave as well? And what about their material world? So what, uh, what's the infrastructure like? What demands are placed upon them by, by the workplace, for instance? We worked on a project with Leeds City Council to try and improve the air quality in our cities. It's a big problem at the moment. So we're looking at the ways in which people might change their behaviour to do this. So the biggest culprit really is making short journeys in cars. So we were trying to, to work with people, people to explore what alternatives they might have. And cycling more was one of the options. It was really interesting in the research, though, because most people, when you talk to them about maybe they could get out of their cars and cycle instead, they act as if you are completely crazy for even suggesting that. And it is not a, a solution that is at all feasible for them to undertake. One of the big problems we identified is that if you're a car driver or even if you're a pedestrian, it can be very daunting, this idea that you're going to get on the bike and interact with traffic. And people thought that motorists were very aggressive towards cyclists. And this really was putting most people off the very idea of cycling. So we in the course of the research, we were exploring about how this might happen. Um, one, of the, one of the findings that came out was that actually most motorists aren't aggressive to cyclists at all. And when they get the opportunity to talk through the different ways of transport and why they don't cycle, it became clear that people did actually appreciate those who are cycling because it takes traffic off, the, off the, the roads and it improves air quality for everybody else. So it was suggested that instead of the, the traditional think bike sticker that you often see with the, uh, with, in cars to, to remember motorcyclists and to look out for them, it was suggested that people have a thank bike sticker in the car just to flag up to cyclists that we're looking out for you. We really appreciate what you're doing to try to make the road safer and to reduce air pollution for our city. There's lots of things that individuals can do to try and become more sustainable. The one that we're hearing an awful lot about at the moment is simply using gas in our homes for cooking and heating. So this is such a big thing if people could reduce the amount of energy that they're using in their homes. It's often not just about the individual though. Yes, we can turn the thermostat down a little bit and reduce the amount of gas that we're using um, in that way. Uh, we could sometimes reduce the amount that our heating is on for, perhaps dress more warmly indoors. Uh, but other things that the government can do, for instance, or our cities or local authorities can do. And so I'm working on several projects looking at changing the gas supply that we're using from natural gas, which is comprised mainly of methane, and that releases carbon dioxide whenever it's burnt. So every time you put on your central heating, or every time you turn on your gas hob to, to cook something, we're releasing carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So 
we can try and do something about that individually, but it's more effective if we look at a, a more systematic way of changing behaviour in this way. So the projects I'm working on are looking at replacing natural gas or methane with hydrogen gas. That doesn't release any carbon dioxide when it's burned. It only releases heat and a little bit of water, so it's much better from the for the environment. But of course, that's not something the individual can change. So we're looking at working with communities and with the government to see how that might be achieved. That's such an, an interesting question. And it's one that everybody working in this discipline was really nervous about. They're thinking, how are the public going to react at the prospect of having hydrogen gas in your home? Well, yes, hydrogen gas is explosive. I mean, it burns. So does natural gas. And that's why we burn it. It produces heat when it's burning. And the evidence is that, yes, it is safe. There are some differences between hydrogen and natural gas in how they behave. Hydrogen is a little bit more explosive, but it's also much lighter, so it dissipates much faster. So really, really fascinating questions around the practicalities of changing over the gas supply system. But what my research was focusing on was how would the public react to that? So we, we held a whole lot of different research sessions. So ranging from interviews, surveys, focus groups and deliberative workshops in which we're getting people together with experts to explore these different questions and to co-design with the public a series of information for the general public about a potential conversion of the gas system to hydrogen gas. And what we actually found was the public are really trusting that if they get hydrogen into their homes, it will have been tested and it will be no less safe. It will be just as safe as the gas we're using at the moment. And in fact, one of the most dangerous elements of the gas we use at the moment is that it can release carbon monoxide, which is a killer. And so if we convert our gas supply to hydrogen gas, that can't release any carbon monoxide. It doesn't contain any carbon. So for that reason alone, it's going to be much, much safer than what we've got at the moment. there are several different ways that we could source hydrogen gas. The ideal situation would be if we can get it from water. So we can use electrolysis to split water, which is H2O up into hydrogen and oxygen. So we just take the hydrogen and use that. At the moment, though, the technology isn't quite there to do that cheaply enough and at sufficient scale to supply the population. So instead, a short-term solution would be to take the natural gas we've got at the moment, methane, and to strip out the carbon, strip out the hydrogen, and just use the hydrogen. That means we've got to do something with the carbon, the carbon dioxide. And at the moment, the idea is that that could be stored underground safely and securely. It's not an ideal long-term solution, but certainly it could help and be part of the solution in the short term.
People have been very surprised to learn that every time they turn on the gas central heating, they're contributing to climate change because this wasn't really widely known at all. So there's a lot of people who are quite dismayed at this and are very motivated to make changes to try and reduce the impact they're having on the environment. The danger that we've got to try and guard against is that if we put out a blanket message, a blanket behaviour change campaign to don't use your central heating as much, there's the danger we're going to have a negative impact on the people who are in fuel poverty, maybe, who are already living in very damp, cold homes. And damp, cold homes can be a health hazard. So we definitely don't want to try and convince them not to put the heating on to make their home a little bit colder because we don't want to damage their health. I was actually working on several research projects on the COVID response. Uh, in Leeds, for instance, we have been hearing that there's been some reluctance among young people to be vaccinated. So I was involved in a research project to have a look at why is this happening and can we build a behaviour change campaign in which we're encouraging young people to take their vaccination. So we were able to build in all sorts of behaviour change techniques to try and target information specifically to young people. You can see this more widely in the government's response, though, uh, when we were having all those press briefings and they were really keen to tell us most people are being vaccinated, most people are complying with the rules. This is really important in behaviour change because we, we're a social species. One of the main drivers of our behaviour is we want to do what other people are doing or other people whose opinion we respect or other people who are part of our community. We want to do what they want us to do. And so if we were to hear in a behaviour change campaign, so many people aren't getting vaccinated, so many people aren't self-isolating or sticking to the two-metre rule, then that would actually have the opposite effect that the behaviour change campaign wants to achieve. It would tell us it's OK not to stick to the rules because all these other people aren't doing that either. So that was a really interesting one that came out so strongly. The School of Built Environment, Engineering and Computing are passionate about making a difference to the way we plan, design, construct, protect and maintain the world around us. They aim to produce the technology and the systems that make the smart city work and the digital economy function and secure. The school brings together a range of courses focused on your learning needs, rooted in practice based industry-oriented and collaborative learning. Together, we want you to experience real-world impact, explore the human applications of various areas of expertise and to feed off the opportunities this dynamic city and region have to offer. So, whether you're starting out on your educational journey or wishing to progress professionally, discover more about our courses at leedsbeckett.ac.uk forward slash B-E-E-C.
So these are interventions that are, are targeted. Targeted sounds like a really odd word, doesn't it? It doesn't mean that we're picking on people. It just means that we're trying to make the information as relevant as possible to the people we're trying to, to communicate with and to get to change. So even though we see that the vaccination uptake rate is really high, if we look at the population as a whole, there are small areas, small communities where the vaccination rate is actually much, much lower, say 25, 30%. So the, the, the research projects I'm working on are trying to understand what is it about the campaigns that are not being effective for people in these areas? How can we understand the world through their eyes, understand their barriers to complying with the rules and make changes to make it easier for them to comply with the rules. So for instance, um, the rules are, for instance, if you test positive or at one point the rules were if you got pinged, you had to stay in, you had to self-isolate, you couldn't work. But for people who couldn't claim sick pay, who didn't have any financial support, if they were going to stay in for 10 days, then that was an impossible ask for them. So a lot of my research is trying to understand the world through their eyes, understand what it's like to be told to do these things and therefore understand how we can change the ask to make it possible for them to behave in a way that, that's safe for everybody. So if we're trying to design a behaviour change session such as national driver speed awareness courses, for instance, again, it's a case of really trying to understand what is the world like through the eyes of individual drivers, so understanding why they're speeding. So some research I did for the Department for Transport was looking at that exact question. Why is it that people are speeding? And we found evidence for four different types of speeding. So first of all, people might speed because they don't know that they're speeding. Maybe they don't know what the speed limit is or they haven't noticed the speed of their vehicle has crept up. So that's one reason. There's another reason for speeding, which is people don't think it's real speeding. Yeah, they know they're speeding, but it's just a few miles over the limit. And that doesn't really matter because that's not proper speeding. Why are they being pursued and targeted for this? Because they're not the problem. There's a third group who know they're speeding. They know they're speeding quite a lot over the limit. But they think they're safe anyway. They've got a better car. They've got good reflexes. It's okay for them to set to speed, even if it might not be okay for other people to. Then we've got a fourth group, and they also speed often. They know they're speeding a lot over the speed limit. But the difference here is that they know it's not safe. And that's why they're doing it. It's to get that buzz or that thrill out of taking risks. So the first stage of designing a behaviour change intervention like that is to understand why people are behaving in this way. And then we can start to address that. So for instance, if we know that some people are speeding because they don't know they are, then we would need to pick some behaviour change techniques that will help them figure out what is the speed limit or to always know what speed limit they're doing. If it's a case of they don't know why this matters, then we need to pick some behaviour change techniques that are explaining to them why it does make an impact and why their behaviour can make things dangerous for themselves and other people on the road.
So this is the second stage. It's once we've understand once we understand why people are behaving in this way, it's picking behavior change techniques from a series of there's 93 of them, and we're trying to identify which ones are going to be the most effective in getting people to change their behavior. Um, so out of those 93, we might we definitely don't want to pick them all. There maybe there's going to be five, ten, fifteen. We put together a course. Uh, we test it right the way through with members of the public to find out if it's having the effect that we hope it will. And then we put it all together, create the materials and then evaluate it. Yes, the, the, course, the courses that myself and my team design have been going for several years. Uh, roughly one and a half million people go on them every year. And yeah, they're evaluated, but it, for something as big as this, we don't evaluate it ourselves. We have an independent organisation who will come in and evaluate it for us. So we know from the research evidence that it does have a long-term impact on the way in which people drive. It makes them safer, it makes them more considerate. So for the research tells us that people are less likely to speed, they're more likely to consider other road users, particularly vulnerable road users, such as pedestrians and cyclists and motorcyclists on the road. But we also, it's really good to hear it anecdotally as well. So when people find out that I do research and design driver courses, they'll often come and tell me about a course that they went on and how it has changed how they drive and as a consequence of being on that course they now are more safer this is what they've done differently and sometimes they tell me about incidents that they've avoided so collisions that they would have been in but because they went on the course they avoided it and that's fantastic feedback School children will often learn in schools about being a safe pedestrian. At the moment, road safety, road safety professionals, local authorities will go into schools and they will provide some training for, for school children to be safer pedestrians. But we don't know what's the most effective way of delivering that training. Some schools will have a talk by a road safety officer. Some schools might have classroom activities with a teacher. Some schools might take children out on the roads and, and get them to practice putting things into place when they're crossing roads. But there's very little evidence to identify what's the best way of doing that. So some of my research has been trying to build up this evidence base to understand what's the most effective way of making our children safer on the roads. And yes, we found out that it's definitely more effective if children are able to go out onto the roads and practice things with their teachers or parent volunteers or road safety professionals. When I was a, a postdoctorate research fellow, so I was working on visual epilepsy. So what is it that causes people to have video game seizures? And we actually figured it out. It was a great bit of work and we identified exactly what it was in the video games and in the screens that we're using that could cause seizures. 
And then the project team produced some patient information to, to help people understand what is video game epilepsy. The problem was when I looked at it, I thought this is so complicated. It's not really written as if I were a person with epilepsy. It doesn't address the sorts of things that I would want to know. So that got me really interested in understanding, well, how do we communicate with people in a way that will help them make an informed choice about their lives? And that switched my career from neuroscience onto health psychology. So most people with epilepsy will already know that they've got it, but there are some people who will never have had any seizures until they play a video game, a particular video game. This probably happens less frequently now than it used to, because when video games first became popular, people were playing them on their television screens, which had a, a bit of a flicker in them. So if people had a type of epilepsy called photosensitive epilepsy, this could very frequently trigger them to have a seizure. What really got the attention of the research community because it became a crisis was something called the Japanese video game disaster. And that was when a particularly popular video game was released that had a, a colour combination that triggered thousands of young people to have seizures who'd never had a seizure before. So that's why there was this big drive to try and understand what is it about playing video games that can cause people to have seizures. It's a team that includes building forensics people who will look at the, the fabric, so the structure of people's homes and offer advice about how to make homes more energy efficient. We also, the team also looks at policies to try and make sure that the policies are supporting people to be more sustainable. And then there's the group that I work with, with which is all about behaviour. So we're looking about how you can translate what we know about buildings and about policies and create the context in which people are able to change their behaviour to become more sustainable. As a student at Leeds Beckett University, you'll find out about our research in all sorts of different ways. In your lectures, we might cover it as case studies or get you to read some of the research papers that we've been published. So you can come to talk to us in tutorials. You can join in on our research groups as well. Students are always welcome. And in fact, some of the other courses that students study have a module in which you come and work alongside us and take part in the research. And finally, there's the final year projects as well. Most courses, it will involve a project, a research project. And we really encourage you as a student to come and work with us to, to do your research on topics that we're also working in. And then you can be absolutely certain that research that you're doing is going to be useful and it's going to be used by society as we're trying to all become more sustainable. I'm feeling very optimistic that people are going to change their behaviour to become more sustainable. 
The message has been there for a long time about how this is important and we all do need to change. But it is quite difficult as an individual person to make these changes. Whereas now, as a society, we're becoming much more aware of how absolutely essential this is going to be. So it's something that everybody's going to talk about more. Our social norms are going to change and there's going to be a lot more social support to help us make these changes. The Beckett Talk podcasts are released every Tuesday, so don't forget to check our social media channels on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook to find out more details on our next episode. See you next week.